Hi, I'm Katie Bravo, and I'm co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month, we give writers a theme and invite them to tell their true stories on stage. This episode's theme is Back in the Saddle. In our first piece, A Baywatch Night, Robbie Sherwood experiences six degrees of David Hasselhoff. It's true my nickname is the Pussy Whisperer, but that's only because cats like me. <laughs> but I'm here tonight to share my, the story of my first and only one-night stand. Why I was one and done will become increasingly clear. But before I go any further, I must warn you, you'll never look at David Hasselhoff the same way again. <laughs> It's been many years, but I often think about that night, not because I'm nostalgic, but because the reminders are inescapable. Every time I see David Hasselhoff on TV, I'm right back in the zone. The zone was the happening Scottsdale nightclub in the early 1990s. <clears throat> in my final year of college, I spent an awful lot of time there. I can't tell you why, except that I was between relationships and in, in a serious dry spell. I don't remember why we constantly ended up there, Yes, there were girls, but the music was too loud, the drinks too expensive, cover charge too high, and I was too broke. Also, the people seemed, all seemed taller, better looking, more expensively dressed than I could ever hope to be. I rarely failed to have a shitty time, but never put up much of a fight when my friends suggested we go. It didn't help that I couldn't bring myself to speak to a woman at a nightclub unless I was spoken to. And that rarely happened unless I was in someone's way. <laughs> I had a paralyzing fear of sounding stupid or cliched when trying to chat up a female stranger, especially the zone types who seemed like they had heard it all before. So there I was again in the zone. My friends had disappeared to do their thing, so I wandered upstairs to an industrial-looking uh, second level and pushed my way to a packed bar in order to, uh, to order a drink. I aimed for an opening that briefly flashed between two women who were both wearing white business-style pantsuits. In a sea of black t-shirts and miniskirts, their whites beckoned like a lighthouse. <clears throat> it didn't hurt that I've always been attracted to women in business suits. <laughs> they appeared to be sisters, both tall, and both wore their auburn hair and shoulder-length bobs. The younger one leaned on the bar, her bemused grin visible in the mirror, watching a television mounted on the wall. Her friend appeared to be about 35, at least 10 years older than everybody else in the bar. <clears throat> she was on her game, though. She was leaning in close to a towering, muscular man in his early 20s, listening intently, her eyes sparkling with rapt attention, their faces nearly touching, and her body melting into his. I wanted to know what he was saying, so maybe I could turn around and say it to someone else. <clears throat> but the pounding music thwarted my tendency to eavesdrop. Instead, I knifed my way between them, making fleeting eye contact in the mirror with the younger woman and giving her an I'm sorry look. Her expression didn't change, and her gaze drifted back up to the television. Getting to the bar solved only half my problem. The bartender was ex exceptionally, gift excuse me, exceptionally skilled at avoiding me. I thought the girl in white was just rubbing it in when she summoned the bartender with a smooth nod and ordered a Chardonnay, but I quickly realized that this was an act of mercy. 
because now he had to lean in close to hear what hear and could no longer ignore my order. I wanted desperately to thank her, to say something suave and charming. She had a friendly face, and her cool grin seemed like, if not an invitation, at least not the expression of someone who would cruelly brush me off. Still, I let the moment pass. That familiar paralysis had taken hold. I'm never coming back to this place, I thought. I was about to disappear when an odd thing happened. She spoke to me. Did you see where my mother went, she said. <laughs> it took me a beat to realize that she was talking about the woman I thought was her sister. <clears throat> she had apparently disappeared with her new friend. <laughs> that was your mother? <laughs> I think she ditched me, the girl said. If I had been thinking with my brain, I would have turned right, around, right there and ran. This girl was cruising bars with her mom. And mom hooked up. <laughs> but those thoughts didn't occur to me till much later. I was more aware right then that my fear had vanished, replaced by exhilaration at having finally, I hoped, broken the ice. I told her I thought that she and her mother were sisters. Her wince signaled that the compliment, sincere as it was, would have probably worked better on her mom. Her attention drifted back up to the television. Certain that I had blown it, I glanced up at the screen and for the first time took notice of what she was watching. It was Baywatch. A shirtless David Hasselhoff, the show's megastar, was sprinting down the beach in slow motion. The Hoff, I thought. He might just be my last chance here. <laughs> hey, I said, I have a good David Hasselhoff story. Her head swung around, her eyes locked in with mine, a mischievous and sexy smile blossoming across her face, which was not what I was expecting to happen at all. Suddenly I had her full attention, but her reply caught me off guard. I have a better David Hasselhoff story. <laughs> no way yours is better than mine, I said. This sparked a flirty back and forth of mine's better, no, mine's better, followed by you go first, no, you go first. We finally agreed I'd start. She ordered drinks, I paid. Throwing down my Discover card with a silent prayer that it wouldn't max out. <laughs> then here's what I told her. My best friend growing up is named Billy, and his family ran a dude ranch outside of our hometown of Springerville, Arizona. A few Christmases back, I was home from college and drinking beer with Billy to celebrate his recent return from a religious mission where he had tried and failed to convert the heathens of New Jersey to the Mormon church. <laughs> the guests at Billy's Ranch are primarily wealthy families from Los Angeles. One guest, an aspiring actor, had given Billy a bootleg cassette that had been making its way around Hollywood. Bored, Billy fished out the tape and asked me if I wanted to hear something funny. What was it? The girl asked, her hand gripping my forearm in anticipation. David Hasselhoff, I said. The tape was a recording of David Hasselhoff entertaining guests at what I assumed was a house party. He sounded drunk. Having only seen David, he sounded drunk. Having only seen David Hasselhoff uh, interacting with his car, Kit, on Knight Rider, 
I didn't know that he did intentional comedy. <laughs> Once the crowd quieted, Hasselhoff launched into an impersonation. The girl asked who it was. John Wayne, I told her. She didn't seem impressed. A gay John Wayne, I said. Hasselhoff's John Wayne was mediocre, but he was totally killing it with this crowd, at least at first. His one-man show also included the, the voice of Walter Brennan, a little old Irish guy who played John Wayne's sidekick in a few movies. Only Hasselhoff's John Wayne referred to him as Stumpy. The scene had John Wayne and Stumpy on horseback, out on a long cattle drive, and the Duke was getting ideas. You could hear people on the tape tittering in the background while Hasselhoff, as John Wayne, went on and on about how horny he was getting. Well, what have you done with your beard there, pilgrim? Looks all soft and fluffy-like. <laughs> Think I want to run my fingers through it. I don't do a good John Wayne, I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> Hasselhoff would jump back and forth between characters and the biggest, got the biggest laughs as the increasingly nervous Stumpy. Ah, Duke. What are you talking about? What are you saying, Duke? What I'm saying, Pilgrim, is we're going to get off of these here horses and I'm going to fuck you. <laughs> as inappropriate as this seems now, it, it was humor very much of its time. <laughs> Eddie Murphy had gained worldwide fame with bits similar to this, except substitute the comic genius of Eddie Murphy with the comic genius of David Hasselhoff. Only Hasselhoff didn't know when to, qu when to quit. He went on forever, explaining in graphic detail exactly what he's doing to poor old Stumpy. All the while, Stumpy kept interrupting with screams. Ah, oh, Duke, you're scalding me, Duke. Duke, you're scalding me. By the end, as the Duke exploded in a disturbing series of grunts and groans, Hasselhoff's audience had grown silent. <laughs> and so had I. I didn't have a big finish like John Wayne on the tape. <laughs> but the girl, she pursed her lips, narrowed her eyes, and nodded, as if to say, well played. But my story's still better. By this point, I'm positive that the girl in white had told me her name, but I can't remember it for the life of me. I'm not proud of that, or any of this, frankly. <laughs> but I remember exactly what she told me. This girl who cruises nightclubs with her mother and had until recently lived in Paris. She didn't say what she did or how she got there, only that she lived in a flat with her Algerian boyfriend and their love child. Oh no, she has a kid, I thought. And I didn't remember her using the term ex when referring to her boyfriend either. Again, this would have been a good time to run, but I was in too deep. I had to know how this Hasselhoff story ended. <laughs> Late one night, the girl, her boyfriend, and his buddies were dining in a Paris cafe when in walks you-know-who. David Hasselhoff was inexplicably a huge singing star in Europe at that time. So it caused an immediate stir when he walked into this little cafe, unescorted, no entourage. The girl just had to go say hello. When she introduced herself, Hasselhoff was surprisingly thrilled to be talking to a fellow American. He needed help. He had just arrived in Paris and asked if she knew where he could exchange money at that time of night. 
The girl said yes and asked if he'd like her to show him. As the girl gave her friends a, don't freak out, but I'm leaving with David Hasselhoff look, <laughs> they ducked out of the cafe. At a backroom combio, she watched Hasselhoff produce a wallet stuffed with $100 bills and give it all to a man behind a window who replaced them with a, sticks, a thick stack of francs. Heading back, the girl asked Hasselhoff if he wanted to join her group for drinks. Surprisingly, he said yes. Hasselhoff ordered wine for the table and instantly made several new friends. But just like with his John Wayne impression, he didn't know when to stop. The wine kept coming, and the girl could take it no more and tapped out. Hasselhoff implored her to stay, but she had to get some sleep. However, her boyfriend and his buddies remained. Hours later, the girl awoke to her boyfriend stumbling in. He had something to show her. What, I asked. We must have been shouting, but the zone now seemed silent except for our voices. A wallet. David Hasselhoff's wallet. You mugged David Hasselhoff? <laughs> I said. Mugged? No, she said, a bit too defensively for my taste. <clears throat> they rolled David Hasselhoff. <laughs> Mugging, I learned, implies awareness on the part of the victim, which apparently wasn't the case because Hasselhoff was passed out. <clears throat> this girl is a criminal, I thought. <laughs> but instead of running, I asked how much was in the wallet. <laughs> About 4,000 bucks. We lived on it for six weeks. No question about it, she won. Her story was better. There was also no question that this girl was trouble. And if I had been thinking with my brain, I would have turned around and ran. Instead, I asked her to dance. That was Robbie Sherwood. Next, Minerva Orduno Rincon tackles love and temptation in The Carousel. I started riding horses about six years ago, yet I remain an advanced amateur at best. Becoming a great rider takes a level of devotion and energy I can't possibly invest into a hobby. But I've learned more about life and love and relationships from the back of a horse than from anywhere else. And the thing is, everything in life is like riding a horse, no matter what type of saddle you choose. The saddle I've been on the most has been the marriage one. For those of you who haven't tried that particular ride, what I've come to think of as being a sustainable marriage, I think of being on a carousel, on a carousel ride. Drawn into it by a twinkling light and a firm round butt high up in the air, <laughs> I spotted that sparkling horse hiding out in the back, all shiny hair, big white teeth, and just a hint of wild in the eyes, but not too much. It was irresistible. I pushed my way past anyone blocking that one perfect molded saddle on a path of that right is mine and no one else's and jumped on it with a hard determination that said, this is mine, this is where my babies will come from. <laughs> and then the ride started. It was a slow ride and yes, it has a good rhythm and the highs are thrilling for a second, but quickly, too quickly, they're followed by the lows over and over, round and round. 
The highs of the, the ride are great financial stability, great brute health insurance, a warm and comforting body in the bed next to me when I need it, the thrill of working in a nooner, because how else do parents of a small child ever get around to having sex is beyond me. And then the drag of the everyday. Why has the garbage not been taken out? Why is there so much laundry? What's for dinner? Who's cooking dinner? Why are the in-laws spending the winter in Arizona? <laughs> over and over and round and round. So I try to make that nooner the highest of highs to make up for how low that saddle dips. <laughs> and there's a thing about riding. No matter how great the horse, how pretty it is, how much you love it, there's always going to be other tempting saddles out there. So many pretty saddles. Let's talk about the most recent of those saddles. <laughs> you know the great thing about cooking for a living? It's not the working in a nearly 100 degree kitchen in Phoenix in the summertime, or boob sweat, or permanently swollen ankles. No, these aren't the good bits about working in a restaurant. The good bit about working in a restaurant is unlimited access to sexy, tattooed bartenders. The kind of bartender with a Christopher Reeves type of smile. The kind that makes perfect lattes and brings them with a tiny muffin on the side looking at me like I'm on the menu and it doesn't matter that the menu is a la carte. He doesn't need a side dish, thank you very much. <laughs> we talk between orders. He tells me of the Caesar salad at his favorite restaurant back in his hometown of Seattle. I make him Caesar dressing, thick with anchovy and parmesan. He licks the tasting spoon clean. I tell him things should taste true to what they are. He quotes Counting Crows songs and tells me he loves the music of the 90s. I wanted to remind him he was born in 1989. <laughs> but instead, I tell him about the time Adam Duritz gave me a lollipop behind a theater in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1997 back when he was a child of eight years. <laughs> I want to tell him of all the things I could do while riding on a good horse, or even a bad one. <laughs> instead, I start feeding him slice, instead I start feeding slice peaches to him because frankly, I just want to watch a sexy man eat a peach. <laughs> he gets what I'm doing and eats them slowly, <laughs> solo slowly licking his lips as he walks away, a self-satisfied shit-eating grin on his face. The kind of sexy bartender who replied, yeah, I'll eat anything, anywhere, anytime. Again, that grin to the harmless question of, how do you feel about funky cheese? I was only asking about the lunch I was preparing for him. That kind of sexy bartender. Every day we worked together, that perfect latte would be delivered to my window. Double shot, brewed over a brown sugar cube, perfectly steamed milk, topped by dense foam, unblemished by a fucking doodle. <laughs> perfect coffee. And listen, before you start thinking of making way too much of a perfect cup of coffee, I go into work at 5.30 in the morning. I'm on my feet approximately all the hours I'm awake of every day. I sleep less than six hours a night. 
A perfect cup of coffee is everything. It's better than breathing. It's better than eating. It's better than sleep. It's almost better than sex. When the sexy bartender would bring coffee with that smile and an evil look in his eye, my ovaries, who were so deep in retirement, they relocated somewhere by my appendix and responded to everything with, I'm dead inside. <laughs> Those backstabbing bitches jumped to attention and squeezed. That perfect coffee became sex. I didn't need actual sex because I had this coffee. That coffee was better than most of the marriage carousel ride I had been having because no matter how much you love a ride, everyone falls into a damn rut at some point. Okay, fine. That coffee sex lasted a few days. Then that coffee sex wasn't enough. So what about taking him out of the barn? That perfect coffee-making sexy bartender who insisted on the constant eye-bang as he walked around the dining room with that big Christopher Reeve smile. What about a ride on that? As a sidebar, if you're too young to remember that Christopher Reeve smile, do yourself a favor and look it up, because no man has ever had a better smile than that beautiful blue-eyed creature. That sexy bartender who would have been like riding on a thoroughbred, ears pinned back and nostrils flaring, reins pulled back hard trying to control a reckless ride. It wants to show off and smash into tight corners, going too hard and too fast, thinking only of its own pleasure, while I hang on for dear life on the slipperiest of saddles, using only the bones and muscles between my knees and my pelvis. And it's a blur of terrifying and thrilling experience. So yes, sexy bartender. The kind of sexy bartender with a heavily pregnant baby mama and an eight-year-old daughter who suddenly starts showing up at the restaurant looking like she's marking her territory. And the sexy bartender curls up into himself like an armadillo and won't peel his eyes off the floor, probably giving the floor the old eye bang too. I hope the floor enjoyed it. I had been up to that point. That's the thing with writing on uh, a show off of a thoroughbred. Bruised and sore after every ride, once or twice hitting the dirt and having to ride myself while spitting out what got into my mouth and digging around for my glasses. Somehow, I could always see more clearly after a hard landing. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> okay, let's try that one again. Somehow, I could always see more clearly after a hard landing, even with my glasses knocked off. But again, everything in life is like riding a horse, and even though I know better, I know what to do and what I have, I need reminders. Keep my heels down, keep my shoulders back, keep a firm grin on the, uh, grip on the rein, just not unnecessarily tight. I need the reminder of staying on a carousel is a choice. The temptation to jump out is there, to escape the endless circular path and to roam free instead of being so restricted and occasionally frustrated. But I remember I chose to ride on this carousel. I knew it for years before I decided it was one worth keeping. It wasn't the first ride I tried, and it may not be my last. The, li the lights on it may dim occasionally, and the music could use updating. 
but it knows all my tricks and doesn't have to show off to please me. It makes great coffee, even though it refuses to learn to bring it to bed. <laughs> and the way I see it at this point in my life, the main difference between riding on the back of a 1,200-pound horse or the front of a 180-pound man is the horse actually listens. <laughs> I can spur a horse into listening to me if I have to, though I don't think I would have ever wanted to ride a man who asked for spurs because, hell, that's too freaky even for me. <laughs> a whip, however, is an entirely different matter. That was Minerva Orduno Rencon. Now let's move it on to Chels Noor and her no-frills foray into politics with The Kitchen Table. I grew up in diverse Los Angeles in a divided household. My dad is a California Republican, which I'm learning is similar to a Democrat everywhere else. <laughs> and my mom called herself a Republican but voted Democrat in every election I can remember. Either way, they'd been canceling out each other's votes for 40 years, they'd been married, and politics was never acceptable dinner conversation. So I voted, but other than that, I largely avoided politics. Then in 2016, during the presidential election, after some ugly crying and a little feminist protesting, I began trying to figure out what was next. I knew I couldn't sit quiet at the table anymore. The learning curve in politics is high, and I'll admit to watching several Schoolhouse Rock episodes and asking Google a lot of questions I should have remembered the answers to from Honors Government. I floundered for a while about how to get involved, a refugee group, Planned Parenthood, start my own nonprofit, just angrily write my senators on a regular basis. In the fall, my mentor and former boss, Anita Malik, decided to run for US Congress. And in January, I quit my full-time job as a managing editor for a tech company in downtown Phoenix in favor of freelancing and joining her campaign. Up until that point, I'd known campaigning on only two accounts. In high school, where we hung up a few posters, delivered a speech, and succumbed to the inevitable popularity contest, and the political campaigns I'd watched on television. Based on my viewing of The Good Wife, I had the impression <laughs> running for office was a lot of sitting around in a really nice air-conditioned bus with a lot of good snacks. In the show The West Wing, it was all suits and speeches and a huge staff of people who knew exactly what they were doing. This real-life congressional campaign fit neither of these templates. Rather, when we started, there were just four of us around a kitchen table. Nobody had titles or job descriptions, and none of us had ever done this before. We filed, launched a website, and waited. Unlike the fictional politicians of my shows, Anita was not a middle-aged white man with political experience. Rather, a first-generation Indian-American woman, a first-time candidate, and a mom of two preschool-age boys. The landscape is different, too. She is running in a Republican stronghold during one of the most divisive times in our nation's history, with probably a tenth of the money her opponent will have. This is grassroots at its core. The first several months we spent collecting signatures to get Anita's name on the ballot. 
Standing outside the library in a conservative precinct in Scottsdale means I got mixed reception. Some people were so excited to get a Democrat on the ballot. They nearly knocked the clipboard out of my hands to sign. Others pretended to be in a hurry or pretended to be on their cell phones or pretended to be listening to music with earbuds as they walked by. Some rolled their eyes. One man scoffed. Why would anybody ever vote in this country? Because our opponents could challenge our signatures, we vetted them against strict rules. They needed to be only Democrats or independents who lived within the district. They needed to stay within the petition's narrow lines, and they needed to be in black or blue ink. At the Secretary of State's office, we traded in our box of petitions for a single sheet of paper. We were on the ballot. Half the campaign happened before we ever had a headquarters. But when the guest room of Anita's home in Scottsdale was overflowing with yard signs and walk cards, we needed a place for volunteers to meet, and we found a vacant space between a dog groomer and a Chinese restaurant in a strip mall. If there was one thing I learned from Josh Lyman on the West Wing, it was headquarters is all about energy, not pretty walls or expensive furniture. TV shows make campaigning look pretty glamorous. No one talks about the hot afternoons you'll spend pounding rebar for signs into dirt as hard as concrete. The Good Wife makes it look like all campaign events happen in fancy high-rise hotels, while the reality is the majority of events take place in community centers with tacky luau decorations or in high school cafeterias. The West Wing never mentions at least one meal a day is a protein bar or that you will subsist off a lot of cheap pizza. The show doesn't portray what it's like to run as a minority woman in the age of internet trolls. For the record, West Wing was written about a male presidential campaign. So it's not outrageous. It's not an outrageous oversight on the part of writers to skip over what this process would be like for a woman. The show started in 1999, while Bill Clinton was president. It was pre-9-11, pre-Sarah Palin, pre-Nancy Pelosi. Politics were different, and the number of women in Congress hovered somewhere around 13%. 2016 was supposed to be the year of the woman in politics. Instead, the Trump backlash has set the stage for 2018 being that year. Bloomberg estimates 560 women are running in just the up-ballot U.S. House and Senate races. Does anyone else see the irony in this? We want women in leadership, and we know representation matters, but we are particularly unkind to, to women running for office. We treat them as if they don't belong here and we judge them at every step, and we question them for every decision. There are certain rules which apply to everyone in the public eye. Wipe off deodorant stains, have a stump speech ready, check your teeth before appearances, stand up straight. But there are different rules for women. Wear heels. Look put together even if you're just grabbing milk at the grocery store. Be passionate, but not too aggressive. Calm down, but don't be too timid. Prepare to be asked at any given time who is taking care of your kids. It didn't take long for Anita to decide 
to decide that she was going to wear flats. She wasn't going to dodge the hard questions in favor of talking points, and she was going to run the campaign her way. We would fundraise what we needed to, but we would spend our time talking to voters, not locked in a room making phone calls to donors. These conversations are where we found our district. Hope, grief, desperation, resilience in real life. A volunteer and I are canvassing the Sandpiper precinct, and a woman answers the door. She steps outside, cracks the door behind her, and whispers, my husband is a Trump supporter, and I'm not, and it has been the hardest year for us. Or a 14-year-old kid and his dad show up at a meet and greet at Jalapeno Inferno. It was the kid's idea to come. He's too young to vote, but his whole family becomes regular volunteers. Or a phone banker asks a man if he's planning to vote in November. He says no because he has a record and therefore his right to vote has been stripped away from him. Or an Indian American mother walks into the campaign office with her young daughter and says, my little girl is so excited to meet Anita. She's never seen anybody who looks like herself running for office before. Or a friend who said his flagpole broke in half during a monsoon but his Anita Yard sign is still standing strong. We won the primary, despite being outraised by our opponent. The general election lies ahead in November. There are no polls. Trump won the district by 10 points. The sheer number of Republicans in our district means that it's an uphill climb, but the alternative is to do nothing, to say my voice doesn't matter and that I can't possibly make an impact. I won't do that. When you have spent your time listening to stories, when you realize every phone call and every postcard and every awkward conversation about politics really does matter, when you have shown yourself and others around you that even four people with next to no political experience can affect big change from a kitchen table, when you see democracy working in tiny, miraculous ways, winning seems secondary. That was Chels Noor. And as we near the end of our show, Evie Carpenter nears the end of the pool in swimming lessons. My palms still get sweaty when I think about it. And if I let my mind sink back to that place when I was four, I can feel my toes choking the edge of the pool. It feels like the water and my dad's expectations are looming up at me all over again. It's funny what details stick in your memory, even 23 years later. I can easily recall the feeling of my skin tightening as the chlorinated water dried, and how the cool deck felt anything but on my bare feet in the triple-digit Arizona sun. I can still hear the staticky pop music playing over the aged speakers surrounding the two main pools, and the, sm the salty smell of hot dogs. Honestly, I can remember that the best because the snack bar at the Phoenix Country Club's pool served their hot dogs sliced lengthwise, so they had extra surface area to crisp up on the grill. They'd lay totally flat on a hamburger bun. In hindsight, I know they probably did this to save money on buying two different types of grilled meat buns, but my young mind thought it was revolutionary. My brother and I, as adults, 
still reminisce about how ingenious those were. But other things, things that my dad, brother, and mom will never forget, are only those hazy mirages of a memory, those scenes that you can play back in your head, but only because you've been told them so many times. It seems like every kid has a scar from a time when their dad said something like, no, it'll be fine. This is the story of how I got mine. On that day, my mom had decided that my dad was going to take my older brother and I to the country club's pool to get us all out of her hair. My parents wouldn't divorce for another 13 years, but the relationship was already tense, and space was always a good thing. So, like our own mini National Lampoon's vacation with a much hairier Chevy Chase leading the way, we were off. My dad slathered the two of us with sunscreen and packed us up with our foam noodles, inner tube, goggles, and squishy frisbees, and drove us across 7th Street to the club, as we called it. Full disclosure, my family couldn't actually afford the membership required to swim at the club, but my dad refused to put a pool into our backyard and relished the opportunity to wave at a gold water in the men's locker room. So, debt be damned. Plus, he was convinced that I could have become a world-class golfer if I'd tried. I hate golf. <laughs> I remember that if the breeze blew just right, you could smell the fresh-cut grass from the golf course all the way over at the pool. Ugh, disgusting. I hate fresh-cut grass, too. But I don't really remember the cloyingly sweet, earthy smell that day. Just hot dogs and chlorine. There weren't many other people at the pool. Apparently, other families wisely decided the pool time wasn't worth the fees. Or they had their own. So, my brother and I had our pick of the blue and white plastic loungers. We immediately ditched our flip-flops and early 90s graphic t-shirts and sprinted towards the pool, disregarding my dad's flat, disinterested, no-running warnings. My brother pinched his nose and leapt in while I hurried over to the steps and eased myself into the cold water with the help of the railing. By that point, I'd already graduated from arm floaties and holding onto the edge to make my way around the pool. I was a full-blown swimmer. But I wasn't so bold as to carelessly dive right in. Maybe in another three years, I would join my brother in that. For the first 20 minutes or so, we did what most kids do at the pool. Foam noodle sword fights, diving for quarters that would sink to the bottom, playing basketball with one of the balls that had gotten a half tan from permanently residing in the pool, and fighting over the one inner tube we had brought along. The fact that there was only one of them and two of us kids made me want control over it enough. But whoever was in the inner tube also got pulled around the pool by my dad. It was almost like a slow-moving jet ski with dad-made motor sounds. What kid wouldn't want to turn? I thought my brother was hogging it. As I got older, I settled into my submissive role as younger sibling. But at four, I had the undeserved confidence to try to assert myself as the alpha and steal the tube away. 
and this meant kicking and clawing at my brother's exposed skin until he cried out. To avoid a scene, my dad decided to distract us with something creative. Hey, you guys want to see a cool trick? He asked, thinking we'd immediately give him our full attention. We didn't. Even now, when my dad says something is cool, it automatically means it's not. <laughs> But when he gets an idea in his head, however terrible it may be, my dad won't stop until it comes to fruition. This stubbornness is one of the few traits I get from him. Eventually, he resorted to a classic parenting technique and threatened to take the inner tube away unless we watched his trick. He lifted himself out of the pool, pulled up his swim trunks, and stood at the edge. Ready? He taunted. My brother and I just looked at him, hoping he'd hurry up. He turned around, bent his knees, and sprung into the pool backwards. When he resurfaced, he looked at us like he'd just flown from one side of the pool to the other. <laughs> My brother and I just looked at him. Okay, you guys try, he said. It'll be fun. He was wrong. <laughs> I was four, and even I knew this was a dumb idea. But my brother quickly did it with such ease, I knew I couldn't be the scaredy cat who didn't even try. Plus, at that point in my life, I still cared about meeting my dad's expectations. I followed his instructions, flipped around, and pushed off the edge before my brain realized what my body was doing. It was terrifying. I couldn't see where I was jumping because I was facing the opposite way. Water flooded my nostrils, and I smacked my wrist on the edge of the pool when I resurfaced and started flailing. My dad swam over and hoisted me above the water. You know when a kid is too shocked to cry? That was me. It's okay, he reassured me. Just try it one more time. I did not want to try it again. It was dangerous and scary, And once again, did I mention I was four? <laughs> I wished my mom was there. He thrust me towards the stairs out of the pool, and I begrudgingly climbed out and led soggy footprints back to the previous point of departure. On my way, I noticed that my brother, like the true alpha he knows he is, had stolen the inner tube and was spinning it tauntingly in lazy circles. Come on, my dad shouted in front of me. He even stretched his arms out to me, an unreliable safety net, and flicked his hands toward his chest as a bit of encouragement. Beads of water still clung to his reddening shoulders from his own demonstration. Just go. I wanted to tell my dad this was stupid but I looked out at my brother, twirling unchallenged. Nope. It was my turn to play with the toy and get another ride on the slow, imaginary jet ski. I was determined to get in that water again. And my dad made it clear that was only happening one way. So carefully, I peeled my feet off the deck and turned around, once again balancing my heels over the edge. I closed my eyes, 
bent my knees, sprung backward, held my breath, splashed in, and then blood. I don't actually remember my chin colliding with the pool's edge and splitting open, or my dad packing me and my brother into the car and flying back across 7th Street. I don't remember my brother running inside the house to find my mom, or her rushing out to kneel down by my car seat and assess the damage. I don't even remember my mom making the executive decision to take me to the hospital, or the number of stitches it took to close the wound, the recovery time, or the fight I'm sure my parents had about it. Yeah, it's funny what details your mind holds onto and which ones it forgets to protect you. What I do remember is that my dad never wanted to take us swimming again. That was Evie Carpenter. Closing out this episode, we have Rebecca Bags, whose life takes an unexpected turn and ends up bringing barflies full circle in Ancient Magic of the Highest Order. I was sipping beers with my friend Larissa on a summer afternoon in London when I first signed up for Tinder and Bumble. Yeah. Mostly for kicks, you know, to compare user interface designs for work research, okay? Uh, we laughed over all the gym selfies and made bets over how long it would take me to get a dick pic. <clears throat> but secretly, I was itching to have some fun and maybe even meet someone special. It'd been two and a half years since I split with my ex and ended our eight-year marriage. Two and a half years of self-imposed celibacy and self-exploration and self-care. Time alone was what I needed to heal and understand my part in our failed relationship. But it turns out going that long without any form of intimate, romantic relationships is really, really hard. <laughs> it was worth it. I emerged stronger and kinder and refreshed and more sure of myself than ever. And I was ready to ease back into things and have fun. But this time around, I would be smarter and wiser and I promised myself not to get involved in any casual flings with anyone I couldn't imagine myself really falling in love with, okay? People are little universes. You'll never know what you're gonna get sucked into. Now, if this seems like a tall order for the likes of dating apps, it was. So far, things hadn't gone any further than going on a couple dates with anyone, and sometimes it was fun, sometimes I met a few weirdo creeps. Most of the time, it was just awkward and time-consuming. I was growing tired of the phone-lit nights, swiping left and swiping right, endless small talk with messaging back and forth, perpetually high on the possibility of what if, and low on battery life. I was nearly ready to delete my apps, put down my phone, and just embrace joyful singlehood and whatever life happened to bring my way. And then we matched. His name was Matt, and his profile read, <clears throat> looking for someone to share beauty in the smallest things. No Trump supporters, sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
He looked dark and mysterious and intelligent and my kind of devastatingly handsome. The stuff Bumble dreams are made of. Our texting conversations were ear-to-ear, grin-inducing, too. He was philosophical and well-read, and he fed the homeless on Sundays, and we had the same sort of weird relationship with church and unconventional ideas about Jesus. Turned out he had spent every summer of his childhood visiting his grandparents, rambling about the small town of Palaka, Florida, where I'm originally from, too. His grandpa was even my family's dentist. Now, my friends cautioned me that it was probably too good to be true. He was either a stalker, a narcissist, married, or the owner of a very small penis. But I wasn't hearing any of it, okay? We chatted for a couple weeks and finally decided to meet up in person. And I can't remember a time that I had been more excited for a first date. We met at Valley Bar a little before the barflies reading that night. And he sat there, patiently waiting at a booth tucked into the corner. I was running late, 15 minutes late, but he still greeted me with the warmest smile. Real life Matt looked exactly like he did in his profile pics, only kinder and sweeter and maybe a bit worldly wise. My heart was racing from all the nerves, but I steadied my breath and I slid into the booth at the table across from him. Now, he just radiated calm and easygoing nonchalance. I was so nervous, I don't remember much of what we talked about before the reading began. But I do remember there was a moment where my eyes met his and I felt it throughout my entire person. And as we sat down side by side during the storytelling that night, I couldn't help but notice how oddly familiar he felt, like I'd known him my whole life. And so one date turned into two and two into four, and we spent the first few weeks getting to know one each other gradually. He'd been sober for six years. He was divorced too. He had become a father when he was only 18. He had three kids. The oldest was just about to start college, and the youngest was nearly in high school. So his wise demeanor was hard-earned. We explored art and music and downtown Phoenix and each other. We stayed up all night talking and trading puzzle pieces from our past and hopes and dreams for our future. We went away on a trip to Seattle together, and everything seemed like a dream. It was exhilarating and exciting, and I never felt so brand new. Matt even wrote me the most beautiful poem. When I read it, I burst into tears in the middle of Lux Coffee Bar, and I thought, everyone thinks I'm crazy. The opening line said, Baby, we are dolphins in flight with fins for wings and saltwater mist against freshwater eyes. And I just melted, okay? I melted. This was not easing back into the dating scene. This was more like ancient magic of the highest order. And so four months into it, we were trading weekends at his place and mine and making Saturday breakfast together and reading on the patio with coffee on Sunday afternoons. It felt like everything was falling into place. And that's about the time I started getting hungry. More like hangry. I was so hungry, I felt like I could eat three breakfasts before lunch. Even Chris, my best buddy slash business partner, commented on my ferocious appetite. And this mysterious hunger went on 
for weeks. I thought it was a fluke. One weekend, I casually mentioned this to Matt, and he casually suggested that I should take a pregnancy test. <laughs> Uh, this possibility had not occurred to me before. I was on birth control. I was always careful. I had managed to be a 35-year-old divorced woman without a single unplanned pregnancy or baby child to my name. I had it on lock. Uh, but we bought the test anyway, just to be certain. And the first two lines, I'm sorry, the first test read two lines. And the second test read two lines. And the third test two lines, and I felt numb. And I felt like suddenly everything that I had hoped for was crumbling around me. And so I scheduled an ultrasound to confirm everything. And that day would be the first day that I ever laid eyes on her. She was teeny tiny and only eight weeks along, but her heartbeat was loud and strong and true. And I was expecting to feel despair or revulsion or fear, but all I felt was overwhelming love for this little human. And I knew that in spite of my fear, I knew in my bones that no matter what happened, she and I, we were meant to be. And so there I was four months into a new relationship and two months pregnant, and it seemed impossible. Yeah. I wasn't in any position to have a baby. I just quit my job to start a business a little over a year ago. I was starting over. Matt certainly wasn't excited about the idea of raising another child with a woman his kids hadn't even met yet. And he was done with the whole baby thing. His kids were nearly grown. I was still processing all of this and just making sense of things when out of nowhere one day I looked down and my jeans were soaked in blood that ran nearly to my knees. And I wasn't prepared for how viscerally devastating that would feel. Without second thought, I reached into the toilet and I grabbed this lump of bloody mass that had escaped from between my legs and I was looking for signs of anything that resembled my little embryo of a baby. Later that night at the hospital, they said I was still pregnant, but I was likely having a miscarriage and it was too early for them to do anything. I should go home and wait it out and rest. That miscarriage never happened. But I did have a serious internal hemorrhage that landed me in the high-risk pregnancy category. And despite two trips to the ER and being on bed rest for a month, she persisted. Meanwhile, my relationship with Matt felt like it was unraveling. And the next few months between us were strained, to say the least. Instead of, how can I possibly sleep with this amazing person lying next to me, it was more like, how can I show you this ultrasound pic without us resenting each other? And we had some of the hardest conversations of my life, gut-wrenching. Like when Matt said, I'll always be there as a father for our child, but I don't see how we'll make it as a couple. Maybe if this had happened after a year and we had met each other's families, we'd have more of a chance. And that was all valid. But that wasn't the way life happened. And I spent a lot of the time feeling angry and confused and heartbroken. But somehow, in spite of everything, spending time together still felt like the best medicine. And so we held on, waiting for her arrival. And I 
do not have the words to tell you the all-consuming joy that was meeting our daughter. I could try and explain to you how looking into her eyes for the first time felt like warm, healing light for everything hurt inside me, but I would fail miserably. There's a poem by Naira Waid, and it reads, she asked, you are in love. What does love look like? To which I replied, like everything I've ever lost, come back to me. And so one afternoon in those first few weeks home with our baby, Matt and I were celebrating our one year anniversary and remembering those early conversations on Bumble. And we realized we'd never actually deleted our dating profiles. And so we logged in and decided to do it together. I looked over all my old matches and there was Matt the handsome stranger who had somehow turned into the father of my child and my best friend. And I decided to send him one last message before closing my profile down. <clears throat> Hi, Matt. You're cute. Would you like to go out with me sometime? We could listen to some live storytelling and then maybe make a baby. <laughs> he said, that sounds good. Actually, all I want to do is make a baby. Can she be perfect? We could name her Virginia Rose. And I responded, deal. I'll see you Thursday night. You can be the handsome fellow in the corner booth. And I'll be the girl that's 15 minutes late. That was Rebecca Bags, And that's it for this episode of Barflies. Special thanks to my co-curator, Amy Silverman, podcast producer Sarah Ventry, Charlie Levy, David Maroney, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Colexico for our theme music. Music